0: I first encountered her at this piano, her flying fingers accompanying the hymns of the people of God in worship in this place, I came to learn of her love for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the Word of God, and for biblical theology. She was an auditor in this seminary, as many of you this evening are. She came for two semesters, and she worked through Boss readings and Ritterboss readings. She is, in truth, our first graduate, for she has graduated from this world to the world to come. Shirley Cardwell laid her head down on the breast of Jesus last Friday afternoon. And now she knows, even as she is known. I dedicate this evening's lectures to her memory. I am happy that you have come to listen to these lectures on the glorious gospel of the Apostle John. I hope you will be drawn deeply and richly into the Son of God as your Savior, your life, your eschatological life, your eternal life. In this gospel, may you find yourself united to Christ Jesus. These are formal academic lectures. Now, before you feel that you do not belong here, let me assure you that the word of God, even at an academic level, is for all the people of God. My language and vocabulary will challenge you. Please do not be intimidated. Do not be afraid of it. Learn from it. Grow from it. Come into the rich, profound vocabulary of God himself. My approach to the gospel will be unique. You have never heard the fourth gospel presented in this manner. This is not a boast. It is a fact. And you are the beneficiaries of this unique presentation of John's gospel. I invite you to come into this gospel that you may go out of this building loving, praising serving Jesus Christ as you have never done before. This gospel is able to change your life. Will you let it? Well, will you say to God on the judgment day, it was too academic for me. Has not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ given you a mind to love him, to think about him, even to think deeply about him. And with John, the son of Zebedee, I invite you to come and think deeply about the Lord Jesus Christ for the next 13 weeks. I ask you to be patient, to listen with your ears, with your mind, with your heart. I ask you to be prepared to be challenged, stimulated, pushed, overwhelmed with the one who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for you. I ask you to pay close attention to the word, to the text of this gospel, to let it speak to you, to let it shape you, to let it press you down into the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge you to do not be afraid of the vocabulary, the uniqueness, the methodology, the academic format. I beg you to draw near to this precious gospel and feast. Feast upon the bread of life. Drink. Drink from the fountain of living water. Lay your head down, down upon the breast of Jesus. This is a seminary course. <clears throat> These are seminary lectures, yet many of you have never attended a seminary course before. Not to worry. Please be patient with yourself. <clears throat> you will gain much more than you will miss. As someone said to me, I am coming to glean. Please stay and glean the nuggets of this gospel treasure storehouse. Yes, there will be things, words, ideas, which you do not at first understand. Learning is the process of gaining understanding. This course is a learning process. If you are unable to learn anymore, if you cannot be taught anymore from the Word of God, then, of course, this class cannot help you. But if you are eager to learn... If you have come here tonight confessing that you do not know it all, if you are hungering and thirsting after the word of God tonight, then I urge you to hang in there, stick with it, be a good Calvinist and persevere through these 21 chapters. You will not regret it, I assure you. Now, tonight's session in particular may probably be the most challenging of all of the 26 sessions. I'm counting them in the two-hour increments. Be patient with me this evening and with yourself. Get what you can. These lectures are being recorded. You may then revisit the tape or the CD and pick up even more later on. Now a word about our procedures. If you are a listener, the seminary audit fee is $40 for the 13 weeks of this course. That's a bargain that even Walmart can't compete with. You are asked to fill out a registration form to hand it to our registrar, Mrs. Ling Harrell, With your check or cash. Second, we will begin each week promptly at 7 o'clock. We will have a break at about 8 o'clock, and that break will give you five minutes to stretch to get a cup of coffee, etc., or another cup of coffee, as the case may be. Third, I will lecture for the two hours each Monday night from 7 to 9. Fourth, I will not take questions during the lectures except to clarify or repeat or define a concept. Discursive questions are to be held for the break time, for the time after 9 o'clock when I will gladly field any and all queries or comments, and I've been known to be here at 1030 after the Monday night sessions. That doesn't bother me. I love to discuss questions. You will listen, I will talk. If questions are addressed, I will address them to the students who are taking this course for seminary credit. Fifth, you have a packet of materials for this evening and future evening's lectures. You may wish to create a folder or three-hole punch or whatever and bring those materials with you for future reference. I will be providing additional handouts as we go along, but I want you to know that the handouts are given to you as helps, help you follow some of the vocabulary and the discussion that I am using. Now, I want to comment on the books or the tools which are on the syllabus and are displayed on the table here. But before uh, I describe them in detail, I want you to understand that these books assume a knowledge and background from a seminary education. Now that means that there are technical and critical issues in these books, many of them of a liberal stripe, and they must be handled carefully by those who are orthodox in their commitment to the inerrancy and inspiration of the Word of God. There are things that can be extracted, but you must understand what you're dealing with. So I am not recommending all of these books to you unless you have been trained to use them properly with discernment, able to sift out the good from the bad in the best critical tradition. But there are three books here which I can recommend to the beginner and to the average Bible believer, to the person who has no seminary training, to the person uh, who is desirous of digging a little deeper. The three books are William Hendrickson's Commentary on the Gospel of John, Leon Morris's Commentary on the Gospel of John. And finally, the most recent update in the Tyndall New Testament commentary series by Colin Cruz, this new paperback on the Gospel of John. I have not read all of it, but what I have read uh, commends it as a standard conservative treatment of the Gospel. Now, the texts which are being used in the syllabus (coughs) include Raymond Brown's two-volume anchor Bible commentary on the gospel, a liberal critical investigation of the gospel of John, but the standard commentary on the gospel because of its theological focus. This is a very rich piece of work, though it is exceedingly liberal. It stimulates and prods. It directs in ways that the average reader doesn't think. And in that regard, it is very helpful, but it must be used with care. The second book, is actually a textbook, and that is Malacuzio's Christocentric Literary Structure of the Fourth Gospel. This is a pontifical institute, that's the Roman Catholic Pontifical Institute in the Vatican in Rome, PhD thesis. It is a brilliant piece of work on the Greek text, it has a very high Christology, as well as a high view of the authority of the Gospel of John, which is quite unusual in critical scholarly circles. It is a groundbreaking study and is now, thankfully, back in print. Rudolf Schnackenberg has published a three-volume commentary on the Gospel of John, which is larger than rabin Brown's. I have the first volume in hardback. The other two volumes were uh, published in hardback and paperback. I've never been able to afford them. Uh, This is another very critical scholarly approach to the gospel, but very thorough and quite challenging. Now, from a narrative theological standpoint, we have Mark Stibb's, Commentary on John. This is a brief narrative approach. Stibb has written a number of studies and two commentaries on John's gospel, but this is the best of the lot. And you'll notice the ISBN number on your syllabus. That's the one you want to get. The other ones are not as well done as this. He has some bizarre ideas about the identity of the author of the gospel, but he has a very good narrative approach uh, to the book, and for that reason, I, uh, I find it helpful. Now, Alan Culpepper wrote The Anatomy of the Fourth Gospel 20 years ago, and this work became the standard, uh, shall we say, uh, dramatic uh, approach, a dramatic study of the gospel. He has an excellent section here on plot analysis and character development, It's very helpful for unpacking the literary narrative uh, characteristics of the gospel. Now, there are two other works here uh, that are not on your list, which are specialty studies. The one is another dissertation by Paul Duke on irony in the fourth gospel. Irony as a literary motif, and we'll talk about that next week. But this is, the now, this is the current standard work on that uh, quality of the Gospel of John. And Peter Ellis, who continues to find chiasms everywhere, uh, Peter Ellis, who is of Eastern Orthodox extraction and uh, influence and uh, continues to publish in the St. Vladimir's Theological Quarterly, uh, which is an Eastern Orthodox uh, Theological Quarterly, This is the first book that he published on the Gospel of John, and he, uh, as you go through this, he finds uh, literary chiasms uh, in every chapter and in every section of the Gospel. And he finds those chiasms uh, uh, based upon the English text or thematic texts. Now, that's not a legitimate chiasm, and when I come to talk about chiasms in detail, I'll give you my own take on a chiastic pattern, but uh, just uh, in the short, uh, a chiasm must be based on the original language. If you're going to justify a chiasm in a Hebrew or Greek text in the Old or New Testament, you must show it from the Hebrew or Greek structure. Ellis can't do it in every case. He's very interesting in what he comes up with, but he is not persuasive many times. Now, your handouts, uh, the packet that you have uh, includes a a list of articles which I have published on the Fourth Gospel. They're there for your information. Many of them are available free on the Internet. You can download them and uh, peruse them at your leisure. But the other part of the handout is a list of terms which I will be using And I want to alert you that those terms are listed uh, on the handout pages in the order in which they will appear in my uh, lecturing. So you'll be able to uh, follow uh, my comments in the order in which those uh, uh, words appear. Now, if you will take from your packet the photocopy of the fragment of John 18, which is known as P52, and that stands for Papyrus Manuscript Number 52. You will notice that this piece of the Gospel, believed to be of Egyptian provenance, is dated by the textual experts to 100 or 125 A.D. It is the earliest, it is the oldest fragment of the Gospel of John. Now, apart from the fact that we have a fragment of the fourth gospel dated to within a decade or three or four decades of the writing of the gospel, P52 is another of those remarkable archaeological discoveries of the 20th century which have absolutely devastated the scholarly consensus of the German and related liberal critics of the 19th century. For you must understand that in the late 19th century, it was fashionable to suggest that the Gospel of John was not written until well into the 2nd century. That is, long after 100 A.D. You may ask, why were these fundamentalists of the left so adamant in assigning the origin of John's gospel to the second century? Well, it's Greek, you see, which it is. But they were not noticing that it was written in the Greek language They were arguing that the Gospel of John was Greek or Hellenistic philosophy. These 19th century scholars argued that the contrasts in the fourth gospel between light and dark, for instance, suggested an author dependent on Greek philosophy, a kind of Greek dualism. Therefore, they informed the Christian world that the fourth gospel was not Semitic. It did not reflect a Jewish milieu. milieu. It was a late product of Christianity's penetration into the Hellenistic world. All this scholarly erudition, may I suggest poppycock, All this scholarly poppycock has been blown out of the water, in part by that tiny fragment pictured in your handout. With the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the archaeology of Jerusalem and other sites in Palestine in the 20th century, the Gospel of John has been restored to its Jewish-Semitic milieu. And the scholarly skeptics have been banished. Well, not entirely. Liberalism is a tenacious ideology and is able to morph itself into yet another form of hostility to orthodoxy overnight. For you see, the creed of all liberals... All liberal fundamentalists, oh yes, there are fundamentalists in the liberal camp. They are as narrow-minded as the fundamentalists on the right side of the spectrum. The liberal fundamentalists all affirm the following absolute essentials as their dogma. First, God cannot reveal himself across time and space the Bible is a religious record of the experience of individuals and groups of individuals with, quote, God, unquote. Second, there is no supernaturalism in history, not the Bible as supernatural revelation, not the miracles of the Bible as supernatural events, not the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the conversion of sinful hearts. All of these are primitive beliefs. They are forms of superstition. They are myths. They are religious fancies from an unenlightened era. Third, all liberal fundamentalists affirm that all religious documents and all pieces of religious documents are the result of a long process of evolution. Religious development, as man's religious consciousness, evolves from more primitive to more sophisticated and enlightened modes of expression." The Gospel of John, if it originated in the mid to late second century AD, was a perfect example of this liberal fundamentalist creed and canon. It was the greatest example of the liberal hypothesis that Christianity progressed, evolved as it came in contact with Hellenistic philosophy. Alas, P52, and the smashing of neat liberal fundamentalist theories, thank God for archaeology. Whereas P52 may establish the first century existence of the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel is not a product of religious evolution, and archaeological discoveries may confirm the Jewish-Semitic context of the Gospel of John, nonetheless, the liberal fundamentalism morphs itself into still further fancies in order to advance its creed, its dogma, its intolerance of biblical supernaturalism. If the Hellenistic thesis failed, the liberals turned to Religion Geschichta, History of Religions. Now, this fancy German word and its cousin, Religion Geschichtliche Schule, History of Religions School, is simply a comparative religions methodology. At the turn of the 20th century liberals began to cast about for sources in other world religions, in comparative religions, which would explain the origin of the Gospel of John. They looked to Iran and ancient Persian religions to explain the Gospel. They looked to Gnosticism to explain the Gospel of John only to be embarrassed by, among others, the brilliant Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, who was in this auditorium two years ago, among others, who showed that there was no Gnosticism before Christianity, let alone before the origin of the Gospel of John. Gnosticism could not have produced John's Gospel, alas, Religion Geschichte failed to explain the origin of the fourth evangelist. Well, then the liberal fundamentalists turned to an emerging critical approach to the Bible, an approach which was being perfected in liberal Old Testament studies by one Hermann Gunkel and could be applied to the New Testament. I am speaking of form criticism. Now, form criticism is a liberal approach to the Bible which segments the types of literature in Scripture to certain literary forms. For example, a gospel is a type of literary form. An epistle or a letter is a type Of literary form. A book of history, like the book of Acts, is a type of literary form, and so on and so forth. But even inside the Gospels, according to these liberal fundamentalists, there are also many subsidiary types of literary forms. There are miracle stories, parable stories, preaching stories, resurrection stories, passion stories. Each of these is a particular literary form. Now, the liberal fundamentalist believes that each of these forms has a distinct and separate origin. Where did these various forms come from? The liberal answers from various Christian communities which gathered up these traditions and recorded them in that particular form. So there was, according to the liberal theory, a Christian community which gathered up the miracle traditions Jesus supposedly performed. And another Christian community gathered up the parable Traditions which Jesus supposedly taught, and so on and so forth. But you must remember, for the liberal, the tradition that Jesus performed miracles and taught in parables, those traditions are not true per se. They may be rooted in some vague reports about what Jesus did and said, But it is the community, it is the believing community which has reinvented Jesus by means of the forms which they have gathered and arranged. So when the liberal fundamentalist studies the forms, he is not studying Jesus, rather he is studying the Christians who believed in Jesus. Now, you will find this most popularly in the infamous Jesus seminar, where those liberal fundamentalist scholars try to get back to the real Jesus of history. Only to get back to the real Jesus of history, they must get back through the traditions and through the Christian communities. Reinvention of those traditions in order to try to reach the hoary, mystical Jesus back there behind the text. Well, how do we get from all these various traditions, all these disparate forms, to a completed gospel? Ah, the liberal fundamentalist has a ready answer to that question. A redactor. You ask, what is a redactor? He is an editor. The redactor, according to the liberal view, takes the various forms and traditions and he weaves them into a continuous narrative. Of course, in the process, he leaves his own editorial thumbprint on the final document and the liberal fundamentalist essays to give us a profile of the redactor on top of the profile of the Christian community, on top of the traditions, on top of the real, if ever remote and hoary, Jesus. But you see, to get back to the real Jesus, you must strip away all the layers which hide him from you. You must strip away the redactor and then strip away the theology of the community, and then strip away the traditions, and then and only then will you get back to the real Jesus. Of course, by the time you arrive at the real Jesus, you really know very little, almost nothing at all about him, since all you know about Jesus, according to the liberal fundamentalist, has been invented by the tradition by the forms of the Christian community, by the redactor, etc., etc., ad nauseum. Well, then, what's the point of being a Christian? Ah, Jesus is such an inspiration. He is such a symbol of goodness and self-sacrifice and hope. But is he real? To the liberal fundamentalist, the Jesus of the Bible, even the Jesus of the fourth gospel is never real. That Jesus is a myth. He's an invention. He's a portrait created by various levels of Christian meditation on the figure of Jesus. And you, you in the modern 21st century church, you may join the parade. You make Jesus in your own image too. That's the liberal gospel. It's no gospel at all, as you can see. But you see, the mainline churches hide that dirty little secret. And until you dig it out and find out that the emperor has no clothes, you're very impressed with all their rhetoric and their programs and their institutions and their magnificent edifices and their building programs. But their Jesus is a fake, for he's been created in the image of a 21st century go-go America. Now, I have been briefly rehearsing the history of liberal fundamentalist biblical criticism for the last 100 years the effect on the church and organized Christianity has been immense as that liberalism has eroded the supernaturalism and historicity of the Jesus of Orthodox Christianity. Liberalism has ravaged the institutional church from Protestantism to Roman Catholicism to Eastern Orthodox denominations. None have been untouched. It will ravage the even more conservative denominations in the coming years, even as it is already beginning to do. You who are here tonight must be vigilant. You are called to understand the insidious and deceptive methods of liberalism Or one day, like J. Gresham Machen, you will wake up to realize that your supposed conservative denomination has been taken over by smooth, sophisticated, even pious, folded-handed liberals. Don't say it can't happen here. Beware. Beware. The liberal higher criticism is on the march into conservative circles and it is winning as I speak. Beware. So we have seen the development of liberal fundamentalist higher criticism from history of religions to form criticism to redaction criticism. All of these approaches are labeled diachronic. That is, they focus on the development or evolution of the biblical text diachronu. Adam, translation, Through through time, through time. In the 1980s, a major shift in biblical studies occurred. This shift came from a rejection of the diachronic method and the ascendancy of the synchronic method from synchrono, Adam, with time, with time. Many of the scholars using synchronic methods rejected redaction criticism, form criticism, tradition criticism, history of religions, etc. They placed these destructive methods, they replaced these destructive methods with an approach to the text which respects or accepts the text in its integrity. That is to say, the synchronic approach treats the text as it is, as we have it it does not attempt to determine the evolution of the text how it got to be the way it is it simply takes it as it is now i personally believe that this approach is a welcome relief it's a welcome relief from the debilitating effects of the form critical redaction critical tradition critical religious Religiongishiklik critical approaches. But I'm not naive. I wasn't born yesterday. I'm 61 years of age, and I've been around liberal seminaries and conservative seminaries for the last 40 years. I was educated in a liberal seminary. I took the baptism of fire. I know how they think. I sat for four years and took it in the chops from them. So I'm not naive. Many of these new scholars who are breathing a breath of fresh air into biblical studies, are as committed to the liberal fundamentalist creed, the dogma of the Enlightenment, as their predecessors. The only thing that's going to undo the Enlightenment in our generation is postmodernism. That's one good thing God may bring out of that movement, because they detest the Enlightenment as much as any Orthodox person ought to detest it. In their analysis of the text... These new critics show that their dogmas remain, though they remain more out of sight. But I caution you, not out of mind. You can't get rid of the presuppositions and still be a part of the fraternity. Oh, no. Don't ever betray the hierarchy of the scholarly academic community. Now, the 1980s shift to a synchronic approach to the Bible is popularly known as the narrative revolution. Its roots are in the new criticism movement. Now, that is a movement of studying both British and American literature, which sprung up in all of Uh, Western universities and colleges after the Second World War. Very creative revolution, very stimulating revolution. But it has only recently blossomed in biblical studies. After all, you must understand that the biblical scholars are always the Johnny-come-latelys. They're always trying to catch up to where the scholars were 20 years before. And the conservative evangelicals are even worse. They're trying to catch up to where the liberals were 20 years before. (laughs) Now, this movement, this new criticism movement, was keenly interested in narrative unity. That is, the integrity of the text, the integrity of a story, the integrity of a poem, the integrity of a piece of literature. They didn't want to cut it up. They didn't want to pick it apart. They didn't want to scissors and paste it. They didn't want to take it the way it was. So in our case, a holistic approach to the Gospel of John. Holistic approach to the Gospel of John. Now, this new movement is also interested in literary artistry. That is, the skill of the writer of the text. They want to see how he uses language. They want to see how he repeats motifs. They want to see how he actually works with words. Get artistry. Yes, the Bible's a work of art. It's an inspired work of art, an inspired literary work of art. But it is that. And you can approach it that way and find many riches there that you won't see any other way. So with respect to the fourth gospel, the new narrative theologians and the narrative method is agreed To borrow Malakuzil's title once again, they are agreed on the Christocentric literary structure of the fourth gospel. Now, in conclusion of this short history of the liberal critical approaches to the gospel of John, let me note that this historical discussion provides you with a handle for evaluating commentaries on John's gospel or commentaries on many books of the Bible. When you pick up a commentary or an article on a biblical text for that matter, where's the author coming from? How do you tell the liberal from the conservative? One way is to examine his or her commitment to tradition criticism, source criticism, form criticism, redaction criticism, narrative criticism, history of religions. That's one way to evaluate. Does the commentary follow a diachronic or synchronic methodology? Yes, you can actually strip away the presuppositions and figure out where Raymond Brown is coming from. He's a redaction critic. That's where he's coming from. As you read his remarks, you can deal with it. Now, after all this liberal fuss and bother, you may ask me, what's the point? If all this liberalism is so counter-orthodox, why waste time with it? Well... First of all, God didn't. He permitted it. So we have to come to grips with it or it's going to ride roughshod over the church without anybody saying nay. Second, we must answer it out of our devotion to the antithesis of the Enlightenment, namely our affirmation in real, concrete Christian supernaturalism and Holy Spirit inspiration of the Word of God. Those are non-negotiables for a person that really believes in the Bible. Third, we too may glean, there may be an occasional nugget in the sludge Fourth, we benefit, yes, we benefit from the collapse of the old-fashioned and passé liberal methodologies. And as they pass away with their silly presuppositions, something better emerges. Narrative theology is a boon. In my opinion, it is not nirvana, but it can help the believer in the inspiration of the Bible. And until Jesus comes, there is more ever so much more to learn about the Bible, yea, about the Gospel of John. Now I warned you that tonight would be challenging. Hang on for 15 more minutes of challenge, and then you can come up for air. Raymond Brown died in 1998. And before his death, he was writing a new introduction to the Gospel of John. Now, the original commentary was released in 1964. And you can see that Brown was attempting to reprise or review the scholarship from 1964 into the 90s. Now, that new critical introduction to the Gospel of John has been published posthumously by Doubleday, which also published this Anchor Bible set. It was completed, that is, Brown's unfinished work was completed by his friend Francis J. Maloney. In that new introduction, Brown reacts to the emerging narrative critical approach. He does so with a modicum of appreciation. And yet, he still remains a form critic, a redaction critic. He still argues that the gospel originates in the Johannine community. So whatever text is in front of us, that is the final form of the gospel, the critic's job, according to Brown, even his last posthumous work, the critic's job is to get behind the text, to reconstruct what he does not see, namely the Johannine community, from what he does see, the text. Well, then how do I ever get back to the Jesus? Well, you just keep trying to strip away and get back there. Now, this is a very dubious business. It is fraught with all variety of subjectivism and arises from post-enlightenment philosophical presuppositions. It claims a kind of scholarly omniscience, which is insouciant, arrogant, and always hostile to inerrancy, the inerrancy of the word of God as traditionally constructed. Make no doubt about it. Every liberal on this table rejects the inerrant inspiration of the word of God. The Bible is just simply another religious text like the Gita, like the Koran, like any other religious text. Second, Brown, in his last work, does agree with the 20th century consensus that the Gospel of John is a Jewish gospel. It is not a Greek Hellenistic product. And so he rejects that 19th century majority liberal opinion that the gospel emerged from mid to late 2nd century Hellenistic philosophy. Third, Brown represents the scholarly fraternity's view of the newer narrative critical approaches. By that I mean, he says, the new narrative criticism is interesting and it can be useful but we will put it alongside our standard liberal historical critical methodology. We're not going to replace our standard historical critical methodology with this new narrative approach. Now, that's living in denial. The critical liberal has been embarrassed by the contrived 19th century attempt to make the author of the fourth gospel a Greek philosopher. They failed in the early 20th century attempt to make the Christian community as a whole the author of the gospel or parts of the gospel. They failed in the late 20th century to make the gospel the product of an editor or a redactor who took the community's documents and shaped them to his own purpose, So the 19th century view of John is passé, the form-critical view of John is passé, the redaction-critical view of John is passé, why should we hold on to historical criticism at all? Give it up! Why not regard the gospel as the work of a single author, moved by the Holy Spirit, to record his eyewitness experience of the life and message of Jesus? Why not something as simple as that? Oh, that's not academic enough. Academic enough for me. If you get that out of this evening, you've got all the academics you need for the beginning of this course. All right. Now, I promised you a break. And uh, let's take the break, even though it's a little in advance of uh, eight o'clock. But let's take five minutes. Now, I'm going to hold you to five minutes or the boom of my voice will summon you from the dungeons of the deep.